Mike has asked me to speak to wind up this um, campaign that we've been running. Um, and he's asked me to speak on the subject of our communion, our relationship, uh, our prayer life with God. And uh, when he asked me, the first thing that came into my mind was, well, yep, need to be talking about prayer and Bible reading and spiritual disciplines and worship and all these things that are so related. But when I thought uh, more deeply about this subject and this whole issue of relating to God, uh, it struck me that there were some deeper issues uh, that perhaps we need to consider first. And I came up with a couple of, um, of these issues that I want to share with you this morning. Um, and the first one is something that um, can prevent us from effective prayer, can prevent us from relating to God. And it's this idea that goes around the church quite a lot that we need uh, to get plugged in to God before anything can happen. We need to get plugged in. Now let me try and explain. I have at home a whole drawer full of different types of leads um, and adapters, all in a jumble. And I would probably be right to say that most of you have a similar sort of thing at home as well. Loads of leads and things that you used to use in the past. And most of these adapters, uh, whether they be wires with their oddly shaped uh, special purpose ends or various types of sockets that we collect, they once fitted into a computer or a DVD player or a VCR or a phone or other devices that have long been thrown out of the house. And the problem is that every device we seem to buy these days comes with its own unique adapter. Now, I again, probably like many of you, often find myself in Costa Coffee. There are, there are other alternative coffee shops available. Looking for a seat next to an electrical outlet. The Costa in Tesco in Dunstable, for example, can seat about 40 to 50 people. But there are normally only about 10 seats where you can plug in. And those particular seats become the prized seats in the coffee shop. Now, there was one occasion I remember that I was chuffed to have found such a seat next to an electrical socket. And I opened my bag and realised that I'd forgotten to bring my power cord with me. So I'm sitting there so close and yet so far from connection. No matter how freely the electricity 
is flowing into that outlook at the outlet, that socket under my seat, I can't make a connection without having the right piece of wire. Now this picture of us having to rely on the appropriate adapter before we are able to get connected to the power source reminds me of how a lot of religion is often presented to us, including, sadly, the Christian religion. It's presented quite often as an if-then religion. If you use the right adapter, then you will have access to God. Now, for those of you who are familiar with your Bibles, you'll probably know that an if-then approach to God is routinely promoted and taught in large sections of the Old Testament. Um, now, the Old Testament is interesting because most of it was written, most of the Old Testament was written by two separate groups of people, namely the priests and the prophets. Now, the priestly class wrote huge chunks of the first five books of the Old Testament, which we call the, the Pentateuch, including the whole of the book of Leviticus. And the priests unashamedly talked at times and operated this type of if-then transaction, transactional system. And they introduced a number of laws, the most important of which were the moral laws, which Jesus said that he came to fulfil, of course. But in addition, uh, they laid down certain ceremonial laws, purity laws, civil laws, and on and on we go. And many of these things were connected to the requirements of the temple and its associated sacrificial system. And there were strict rules about who could enter certain holy places and who was qualified to perform certain holy acts. And such was the vast scope of their religious teaching and the rules they implemented. By the time that the Old Testament canon was completed, it contained no less than 613 separate laws. So your, your Old Testament that you're, you're reading today, that contains 613 separate laws. 613 requirements, 613 adapters required in order to be able to plug in to God. Now, when the prophets came along a little bit later, their view on religion and access to God turned out to be a little bit different to that of the priests. They largely rejected those elements of the priest's teaching, particularly the emphasis that had been placed on the sacrificial system and the teachings 
uh, in Deuteronomy, for example, that God would only bless the obedient but would curse the disobedient. And they switched that thinking around. Hosea, for example, bluntly said in chapter 6 and verse 6 of his book that God required mercy, not sacrifice. A quote that was endorsed and quoted by Jesus in Matthew 12, verse 7, when he said, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known that what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. And many other prophets, including Amos and Isaiah and Micah, and Jeremiah, all weighed in with a similar view that the sacrificing of animals, for example, was not really in God's heart at all. Now, <clears throat> the significance of all this for us is to note that Jesus taught and lived out the spirit of what the prophets taught and largely uh, rejected those elements of the teachings of the priests that effectively chained people to a multitude of man-made laws or man-made religious adapters that had to be plugged in in order to have access to God. In fact, he controversially taught, of course, that people needed really to only follow two laws, love God and love your neighbour, Mark 12, verse 30 and 31. And yet in spite of the clear teachings of Jesus and Paul, who we'll look at in a minute, there still lingers in the Christian church this temptation to try and resurrect and impose new forms of adapter religion. Now, when I first started coming to this church in, um, would you believe, 1979, um, all those years ago, there was a rule in this church that nobody could be involved in the church's ministries unless they could speak in tongues. You couldn't, for example, play in the band or speak from the front unless you had spoken in tongues because if you hadn't spoken in tongues, you therefore weren't filled with the Spirit. That was the clear teaching of this church and the rules that we applied at that time. So speaking in tongues was the adapter needed to plug in to being accepted by God and to serving God. So on that basis, of course, Billy Graham, one of the greatest evangelists the world has ever seen, would presumably have been shown the door at super spiritual LCF because Billy Graham did not speak in tongues. That's just one example of adapter religion. Another adapter that was required, again, when I first started attending this church, was that you had to be male, 
male to qualify to do all sorts of different things. To be an elder or a deacon or a teacher or a pastor, you had to possess the male adapter, if I could put it like that. So over half the church was excluded from serving God in these different gifts. Crazy. And of course, all these adapters were created on the perceived teaching of the Bible. And that's a whole different story. Now, here's the point I'm trying to make. There is a reason why many churches, many Christians are drawn to this adapter or if-then form of Christianity. And the reason is this. The reason is this, that we, do, we, we get tempted to do this type of stuff. It comes from the mistaken belief that God is something other, distinct and set apart from us. God is not here because God is up there. Therefore, there needs to be a connection. But nothing can be further from the truth. And the Apostle Paul shot this false thinking about God being up there and had to be plugged into to pieces when he said in Acts 17.28, In God we live and move and have our being. We exist, in other words, we exist in God. He was actually quoting Epimenides, who was a 6th century BC pagan Greek poet, who had originally written this line about his god Zeus. But Paul, and Paul no doubt was aware of the pagan origins of this quote. He was a very well-read man. But he didn't care. He wanted to firmly make the point that God is not out there, unreachable without a man-made adapter. Rather, we live and move and exist in God. We do not exist apart from God. We exist in God. God is existence, if you like. And of course, Jesus made the same point many times. On that day, you will know that I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. John 14 and verse 20. Back to Paul again. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8 verse 38 and 39. And I, I like to think that Paul's nothing, nothing will separate us, really means nothing. Not a thing. No adapters, no connectors or transactions needed. We are all in God. 
right now. And when that penny drops, I think it just might revolutionise our relationship with God. Now, I said there were two things, didn't I, that I wanted just to talk about that affects our relationship with God. So let me briefly try and explain the second, which revolves around the whole question of identity. Identity. Now, one of the most fascinating and, I think, profound stories in the New Testament is the story of when Jesus met the demoniac in Mark chapter 5. A demoniac, of course, is someone that is possessed by or infested with uh, or overtaken by demons. And this man, we are told, was terrorised by demons. And his community had banished him, uh, we read, to live chained up and naked in a graveyard. That's what his community had done to him. See, this man lived in constant mental anguish and we are told that, and I quote from verse 5, night and day he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So then Jesus, when Jesus asked the man his name, or asked the demons their name, he replies in verse 9, my name is Legion. For we are many. See, a Roman legion at the time consisted of about four to 5,000 soldiers. And this man had got so many names, so many identities, he doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know his true identity. Because of the many identities, voices in his head, he can't function at all lives chained up, and of course he can't relate to God. Now here's a thought. Could the plight of the demoniac, and this is like a challenging thought, could the plight of the demoniac be the plight of millions of us living today? See, when thinking about this, it struck me that one of the names the New Testament gives to Satan is this. is described as the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. The prince of the power of the air. And it struck me what a provocative image that is of our 21st century age where wireless technology has allowed us to be connected to untold numbers of people while at the same time being hopelessly disconnected from our true selves and our identity as God's beloved children. See, living among the tombs seems an apt description to me of the time we spend in our, how can I describe it, earbud-enhanced privacy 
of our, our alternative realities. We're constant access to technology actually drives us apart even when we are technologically together. Now, one recent report that I was reading said that teens spend around, on average, spend around nine hours per day on entertainment media, including social media. Current research is showing that our dependence on technology is actually physically, physically changing our brains. And by most accounts, not for the better. So today, if you're getting my drift here, we don't have to be infested by demons to be given over to despair, not knowing who we truly are. We just have to go wireless. And there are today thousands of voices competing for our attention and it is an exaggeration to say that we in turn feel pressured to present an image of ourselves and our lives through Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever that is more reflective of who we want to be or who we would like people to think that we are than of who we really are. It's so it's clearly so easy today to manipulate our identity to whoever. And the ultimate irony is, of course, that never before have we had so many forms of communication at our disposal. We are beholden to a legion of voices and a forest of screens. And yet really, and this is the irony of all this, really has our sense of loneliness and isolation and lack of true identity been so profound. So the question I ask is this. In an age of relentless self-expression, do we really have any idea of who we really are? Because if we don't, we are unlikely to know how to talk or hear from God, talk to or hear from God. Now, the outcome of the demoniac story is that it was only when the many false identities inside his head were cast out by Jesus that his true identity was restored. Yeah? And then and only then did he become awake to God. Not surprising, therefore, that we read towards the end of that story, in verse 15, it says, dressed, so he was no longer naked, dressed and in his right mind, he sat down with God the Son, talked with him, begging Jesus to take him with him on his journeys. So, who are you? Who am I? Now, I'm going to speak personally here for a couple of minutes to you. I mean, you're my church family. 
and I feel able to do that. See, my personal identity has troubled me greatly recently. You see, I was adopted uh, as a baby and therefore I have never met my birth mother or father. Um, and that I've always known that. It's never bothered me all my life, never bothered me at all until recently, last two or three years. And in the last two or three years, I couldn't get this issue out of my mind. The fact that I was adopted, who, who am I? And I managed through research to discover that my father was an Italian prisoner of war and my mother was English and lived in Woburn. It's just up the road. And I was also able to acquire um, my original birth certificate after some research and help from various people. And I found out that my real name, my birth name, was Lewis Burton. Lewis Burton, far sexier than Roy Turner, isn't it? <laughs> now, as some of you may know, I have always been a very quiet, very introvert person. And I have always found, it's like confession time, really, I've always found socialising, uh, making small talk, very hard. In fact, so hard to the point of being quite stressful for me. Now, some, some of my close friends here know that. Most of you wouldn't know that. And the question then comes into, this is how, this is how my mind works, you see. And the question then comes into my mind, am I like that? Because I have an innate fear of rejection because in my mind, my parents rejected me. And I've talked to Natalie a few times about that and she's been able to, to help me. And I was watching The Long Lost Family. I don't know whether you've seen that TV programme presented by Nikki Campbell and Davina McCall. It was about two or three months ago, I think it was. And there was this adopted lady on there who was wait, wanting to be reunited with her parents. And as she was being interviewed, she explained what was driving her to find her parents. <clears throat> and she summed up her quest with these emotional words. She said, without knowing where I come from, I don't actually know who I am. And as soon as she said that, I felt tears welling up in my eyes. That's it. Who am I? What is my true identity? And again, Nat, who was sitting beside me, was able to, to help me and talk to me about it. Now, you see, in 1 John, the writer tells us three things. Three things. Firstly, that God is love. Secondly, that perfect love casts out fear. And thirdly, he who fears is not made perfect in love. Pretty powerful stuff. 
And we are being told that if God is love and perfect love casts out fear, then fear is the opposite of everything God is. If perfect fear casts out, if perfect love, sorry, casts out fear, then fear must make it very difficult to love. So put that in its starkest form, uh, fear casts out God in our lives. It prevents us from relating to God in any meaningful way. That led me to thinking, do a lot of thinking, along these lines. What if it were possible to hear the name, i.e. our true identity, to hear the name that we all were given before the foundation of the world? What if discovering that name so impacted us that we could be set free to live totally without fear and rejection. Now in Matthew 3, Jesus emerged from the water after being baptised by John the Baptist. We're told that the sky opened and the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove. And then in verse 17, God spoke. And this is what he said. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Only a few words, but they were, I suggest, the most important words that Jesus would ever hear. See, these words were spoken before he had even started his ministry, before the oppressed and diseased were healed, before the Sermon on the Mount was preached. They were spoken before he turned water into wine or walked on water. They were words he would remember when his body was shutting down after 40 days in the wilderness. They were words he'd remember when his best friends betrayed and abandoned him. They were words he would remember when his body was mangled and his beard plucked out. And the day, of course, would come when chunks of flesh would hang from his body. His lungs would collapse. His body would be crushed. But the words would still remain. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You see, the word beloved is scattered throughout many Old Testament stories showing the passion of God for his people. But now, I believe, for the first time in human history, a man had come who really believed that he was the beloved of God, a man who would always remember and would always or would always make every decision in his life based on these words. Jesus never forgot who he was. His identity was non 
negotiable. And that, by the way, is why we read of him constantly talk, taking himself aside from the hustle and bustle of life and talking to his father and allowing his father to talk to us. So my question to close is this. How about us? God says to us, you are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You see, we are the passion of God in whom we are able to live and move and have our being. I'll leave that with you and remember, no adapters needed. Amen.